You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Fancy bear sightings continue. Fancy seems to have settled down in Montenegro. Cyber deterrence is much desired but difficult to achieve. Notes from a Russian jail... Reddit purges influence ops trolls. We'll find out what criminals can learn from your browser. And the US FDA wants to block its people from looking at adult content at work. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, March 6th, 2018. Fancy Bear isn't just bothering Germany. Montenegro complains that it's been receiving a lot of unwanted attention from Russia's GRU over the past year. The long-standing beef seems to be over Montenegrin membership in NATO, never a way of getting on the good side of the bears. Much of the campaign is said to have been waged since January 2017, with phishing emails baited with NATO-related subjects. Der Spiegel, in its follow-up to reports on Russian intrusion into German government networks, notes that Snake, the threat actor local unofficial experts believe responsible, has been known to be active since at least 2016, yet was still able to penetrate German defenses. Snake is also known as Turla or Ouroboros, but the German press seems to prefer Schlange. It's generally held to be an operation of Russia's GRU. German authorities declined to make an official attribution, but they face calls to do something about this business, better defenses at least, or perhaps even some form of retaliation. The damage to the German government is thought to be limited. The target was, according to Spiegel, Department 2 of the Foreign Office, responsible for German foreign policy within the European Union and for Germany's relations with the countries of Europe, North America, and Central Asia, including Russia. Also facing calls to do something about Russian cyber operations in particular is the U.S. NSA and Cyber Command, there are calls in the U.S. Senate for development of a deterrence strategy in cyberspace, especially after NSA Director nominee General Nakasone testified last week that the U.S. adversaries don't appear to fear American retaliation for cyber attacks. The current going option remains sanctions, which at least have some potential to impose costs short of a nuclear exchange, and beyond the kind of naming and shaming that results from federal indictments. Observers think that a fresh round of punitive measures against Russia for last year's NotPetya attacks is likely. One of that campaign's victims, Nuance Communication, estimates that NotPetya will cost it more than $90 million. 
A nation-state might or might not be embarrassed by a U.S. indictment. Probably not. The U.S., for example, generally shrugs such things off, and there's little reason to think most other states are generally more sensitive. But one consequence of a U.S. indictment of a foreign state-sponsored hacker on the individual hacker is restriction on travel. You're not going to be extradited if you stay home in Russia. And some of the indicted trolls from the Internet Research Agency have bravely said they're happy to spend the rest of their days there. But not everyone likes that idea. Suppose you wanted to honeymoon on, say, the Costa Brava? Sure, the sand and sun and food are nice, but, well, you do so at the risk of the Spanish police snuffling you up and turning you over to U.S. Marshals for an alternative holiday at Club Fed. Jeremy Whitcop is the CTO at IntelliSecure. They recently launched their Critical Data Protection Benchmark Survey, and they're looking for participants. Jeremy Whitcop shares the story. We've been doing uh, data protection programs since 2002, um, and we've, we've noticed an increase in uh, adoption of such programs as well as, as the requirements of such programs as of late. And then we started to look at the regulatory environment and, and with GDPR um, that everyone's talking about, but it's not just GDPR. You have Brazil's civil rights framework for the Internet passed in 2014, the cybersecurity law of China passed in November of 2016, the Act on the Protection of Personal Information in Japan in 2017, uh, Canada passed PIPEDA in the early 2000s. Uh, all these regulations kind of hinge on the point that organizations have a responsibility uh, to the general public uh, in each of these countries to protect information that that organization is holding for those people. And they all have very specific protections uh, that organizations have a requirement that they need to uphold, as well as rights that they need to confer to those data subjects. Well, the only way to really do that well is to understand the data in your environment, where it resides, how it transitions in your environment. And that's really all about building a program. And so we thought, as we go through, we're not, we don't work with every company in the world. How can we take some of the things that we've learned, allow organizations to see how are we doing with respect to critical data protection and building a program and governance structures and all the things that we would need in place to really build any kind of program focused on any specific type of information, whether it be compliance data or intellectual property or other. Um, so what we did was we put together this survey. It's really short. You can take it in five to 10 minutes. It's got some general questions and really what it's designed to do is, is benchmark against other companies uh, and assess readiness to undertake a program. And one of the things that we've seen, uh, these types of surveys we used to do in consulting engagements, um, one of the things that we've seen be really helpful for our champions inside of an organization is that a lot of times security or compliance or privacy is trying to drive this in a vacuum. And the result of this survey, they can go back to the business units and the, the governance stakeholders that they're trying to get their attention. And they can say, look, guys, if we want to be successful, here are the things that we need to put in place. And, and I need your commitment and your buy-in and help to do that as well. You know, uh, we certainly uh, have no shortage of uh, surveys in the industry, and I think a lot of companies uh, uh, use them as much for gathering information as they do for marketing purposes. Uh, but you all are making the point that uh, this survey uh, has some usefulness beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for us, it's really more about 
building awareness of what it takes to actually build a successful data protection program um, than it is necessarily a, a direct marketing exercise. We're not using these lists to call into people or, or anything like that. But for us, what we believe in um, is, is these types of programs work. They're necessary. They're in the interest of national security for all the different countries that we operate in. They're also in the interest of our way of life as free people. Um, and, and we've seen that reflected in legislation around the world. And, and to that end, in order for people to continue to undertake these these programs and, and build on this effort, they have to experience some success. Because as people struggle to build these programs, which a lot of people are, the reputation, the industry of the program itself starts to be damaged. And we start to see less people embracing this. And we start to see more large-scale data breaches, which hurt everyone. Yeah, one of the things that caught my eye is that uh, if you participate in this survey, you'll get a follow-up report that'll let you know how your answers compared to your peers. And then uh, ultimately, you'll be able to see the uh, complete results of the report when that's published uh, sometime later this spring. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things that our clients have been asking us for for a number of years. And anything that we collect in an engagement is covered under NDA. So we wanted to put something into a survey format where the people who chose to participate, we could benchmark them against their peers. Because it's frustrating, I think, for my clients when they ask me over and over again, to compare them against their peers, and I can't do it because of contractual lim limitations to what I can disclose. So if people want to find out more, if they want to take a look and see if they want to participate in the survey, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they can either go to our website at intellisecure.com and, and they can find it. Um, there's also a website for the survey itself, uh, criticaldataprotection.com. That's Jeremy Whitcop from IntelliSecure. A January study of Iranian state-sponsored hacking by the Carnegie Endowment receives fresh attention as Iran's non-proliferation agreements come under closer, more hostile scrutiny. Experts are considering ways in which Iranian hackers might also be deterred. The country's Revolutionary Guard has also recently been fingered by ClearSky as being involved in establishing bogus BBC and Radio Farda sites to spread disinformation. Radio Farda is the Farsi language service of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. More charges against Russian hacking and influence operations during U.S. elections are still expected to emerge from special counsel Mueller's investigation. One guy is ahead of the game. Konstantin Kozlovsky is singing like a canary to Fast Company and anyone else who cares to listen about how he says he hacked the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign. Mr. Kozlovsky is a guest of the Russian state, currently resident in prison, what's described as a high-security facility, but security there isn't too high to keep him from chattering. He says he developed software tools, which he calls LDCS, that enabled him to, quote, replace information on Twitter, Facebook, Google, and leading U.S. media outlets, end quote. And he's ready to cooperate with U.S. authorities to show them how he did it. How he might do so from the confines of a Russian prison is unclear, perhaps via his Facebook account, where he manages to be quite active in between court appearances. It's also possible that Mr. Kozlovsky's talk isn't exactly what the lawyers call an admission against interest. He is in the slammer not for hacking the DNC, but for cyber-robbing Russian banks. And maybe Allentown or Leavenworth sound nicer to him than northeast Moscow. In other influence operations fallout, Reddit, which has concluded its platform was used for influence operations during the 2016 U.S. elections, has taken down a large number of Russia-linked accounts. 
Exabeam has released a study of what attackers can learn about you and your habits from your browser. From visited sites, cookies, HTML5 local storage, saved login information, and autofill, they were able to discover accounts and devices, extract location history, and derive a picture of user interests. In industry news, citing potential security issues, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States has put a 30-day hold on Broadcom's attempt to take over Qualcomm. And finally, attention all civil servants working at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Your bosses would like you to stop watching adult content on Uncle Sam's Dime. It's just unseemly and probably unsanitary. After all, who knows where that content's been. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the show Daniel Prince. He's a senior lecturer in cybersecurity at Lancaster University. Daniel, welcome to the CyberWire. Thanks a lot for having me on. So, uh, as we always do, we want to introduce you to our audience. So, uh, can we start off just here? Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got started in the uh, business, and the type of work you do at Lancaster. So, I've been uh, associated with security research for probably over 15, 16 years now. Um, when I started, I, I primarily was uh, delivering education uh, training courses uh, in terms of professional training courses here at Lancaster University. Mm. Uh, but I have an academic background in computer networks, so I did my PhD on uh, mobile uh, wireless networks, particularly programmable networks, so networks that you could really change their configuration on the fly. Uh, and I did a lot of work with uh, IPv6. So. I did a lot of work uh, with um, Cisco and Microsoft developing uh, the protocol implementations for them while I was doing my PhD. 
And then I started doing these uh, these training courses and um, developing new uh, academic programs for Lancaster University. Uh, and that led me to uh, set up and run the master's degree in cybersecurity that we have here, which at the time was really one of the only multidisciplinary cybersecurity programs that you could do at the master's degree level, because it blended technical programs such as penetration testing, forensics and systems design with management, risk management specifically, um, politics, criminology, psychology and law. So a really broad church here. Um, and on that program, I was uh, sort of teaching the network elements of the penetration testing and uh, the uh, forensics um, components, and then also teaching the risk management course. Sitting alongside that, I was developing a lot of um, research uh, interests in uh, risk management and uh, really the sort of technical side of uh, computer networks and particularly computer security in the new sets of protocols that were coming along. And at that time, it, that was IPv6, but also the new types of support protocols such as routing protocols and naming protocols and all the things that sit around network communication uh, and trying to understand where the security vulnerabilities but also new security opportunities might sit. And then towards the end of five years ago, it's really started to consolidate looking at multidisciplinary aspects of cybersecurity. And that's where a lot of my interest in um, the, the, the human side of uh, cybersecurity uh, really took off. Real in-depth looking at uh, the, the risk management aspects and the risk perception in particular. And I'm and, and really starting to question, are we having strong and good, robust uh, security conversations with individuals. And if we're not, why aren't we? And what is it about organizations that are preventing those types of conversations? So I've got a quite a broad and varied uh, background. And along the way, I picked up a number of uh, interesting uh, activities with uh, various organizations in the UK and, and internationally, which uh, get, afforded me an opportunity to really explore some very exciting areas in cybersecurity. Well, welcome to the show. We're, we're looking forward to uh, having you uh, contribute. Daniel Prince from Lancaster University, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, 
Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.